0: Real quickly, this is Greek mythology, so there's some violence and some mention of sexual assault. For more information, please check out the post for the episode on mythpodcast.com. This week on Myths and Legends, it's the start of a short series on the origins of the Olympians from Greek mythology. If that baby you're watching likes hide and seek, cries so loud it needs an army to drown out the noise, and can turn you into a bear at will, that baby is Zeus, your babysitting Zeus. The creatures this week are an incredibly dysfunctional family consisting of a mother that likes to eat children, 13 Christmas-themed pranksters who lick things they shouldn't, and a homicidal cat, who is definitely judging your clothing choices. This is Myths and Legends, episode 131A, Sudden but Inevitable Betrayal. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories that have surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, we're getting into the origin stories of the Olympians from Greek mythology. I realize we jumped in with Hercules, but we've really never gone into depth about how Zeus, Athena, Hermes, and others came to be. These stories are outside of any major continuity, so no worries there, and we'll just jump right in. (laughs) Baby Poseidon plopped down into the cavernous darkness. Well, this was the worst birthday ever, but since it was birthday zero, the day he was born, he guessed he really had nowhere to go but up. Another sound echoed softly in the darkness, a plodding along on baby legs only slightly more developed than his own. He raised his head and out of the darkness waddled another baby. Hey, how's it going? The young one greeted, Baby Hades, nice to meet you. I've been charged with putting together the new baby orientation packet that we all have to go over. First off, happy birthday. We're all very happy for you. Secondly, I'm sorry to inform you, but you've been eaten by dad. Baby Hades brought up his PowerPoint presentation showing a big, angry guy swallowing babies. As far as anyone could tell from the brief glimpses of the world between exiting one parent and entering another, supplemented by what they could understand by putting their ears to the walls of the stomach and trying to listen past the gurgles, was that their dad was eating them. They didn't know why he was eating them or how they weren't being digested, but all of them were alive inside the large stomach of their dad. Cronus. Baby Poseidon wrinkled his adorable baby brow. Wait, all of them? Baby Hades nodded and motioned to the darkness. Baby Poseidon, I'm your brother, Baby Hades. I'd also like you to meet your sisters in reverse birth order. Baby Hera, Baby Demeter, and Baby Hestia. All right, that concludes orientation. As the new youngest, You're now in charge of new baby orientation for the next one. Outside, the next one was already growing in Rhea's abdomen. She had protested, of course, and fought Cronus when he had taken each of the last five, but there was only so much one could do. He was a god the king of the gods actually. Rhea had heard the story from Gaia, their mother, of how he had taken the flint sickle and castrated his own father to free his siblings. Now, the cycle was repeating itself. It was supposed to be a golden age, and it was. It was the age of Titans, where people didn't even need laws. They were perfect, and they did the right thing without rules. Everyone, that is, but the leader. The rot was concealed, but it went deep. It was a cycle present since the beginning of time, and it was one Cronus himself was now perpetuating. He had taken every child from Rhea's arms and eaten the newborn. With the last one, little Poseidon, Rhea told herself it would never happen again. Now, she would be tested. As the day grew closer and closer, Rhea's abdomen swelled. Then, she knew it was time. That night, Cronus couldn't find her, he searched all over the heavens and the earth, until he heard a cry, far off, a Mount Lyceum. Now, no one can control exactly when a baby comes, not even a goddess, but it couldn't have gone more perfectly on this particular day. In the dead of night, the youngest child arrived, and his name was Zeus. It went perfectly, but no one had anticipated just how fast Cronus could move, and the newborn was barely swaddled when the door flew open. Cornish crashed into the room, the baby screaming nearly inaudible over his wife's, and he grabbed the little swaddled form and forced it down like all the others. With a sneer, he strode over to Rhea, demanding in her face that she never hide a child from him again, and he stormed from the room. Meanwhile, in the Titan's daycare of a stomach, the five children heard a familiar thud of a baby landing in stomach acid, which, yeah, Always a good day when that's become a familiar sound. It was baby Poseidon's turn to lead, so he wasted no time patting over on his chubby little baby feet, clicking his pen, and welcoming the kid to new baby orientation. He was Poseidon, and he would be guiding. Wait, said Poseidon, still offering the orientation packet. This baby wasn't responding. Guys, hey guys, come here. This isn't a baby, it's a rock. Elsewhere on Earth, Gaia, Cronus and Rhea's own mother and the personification of the Earth, was spiriting the actual baby away. She had given him a quick bath and carried him to Crete, where she found a cradle of gold beside two nymphs and a goat. Gaia glanced at the armored bald men with the drums outside. Good, this was all going according to plan. Baby Zeus would drink the milk of the goat while the nymphs took care of him, all while resting in a golden cradle that hung from a tree. Every detail had a reason even the cradle, placed just so. The baby lay safely so that, if Cronus ever caught wind of Zeus, he could search the heavens and the earth and never find the boy, because technically, Zeus wasn't fully on either of them. The armored drum circle outside featured Rhea's dancers. For the next couple of years, they would stay on Crete and make enough noise to drown out the cries of the god. If everything went according to plan, best case scenario, Zeus could free his siblings. Rhea probably realized that it was just perpetuating the same cycle of violence that led him here, but she wanted her children back, if there was anything left of them. But not even the Queen of the Gods could keep Zeus a secret for long. Rumors began to abound about a child of Cronus who had survived, and the king searched heaven and earth for the boy. The time came, too, when Zeus was too big for the cradle, and when his foot touched the ground, Cronus felt it. He flew to Crete immediately and found... A friendly snake, hanging out with his bear friends. Nothing weird or suspicious about that. With a furrowed brow, Cronus apologized to the odd little family and shut the door. As soon as the door shut, the snake turned back into a giggling baby Zeus, and incident friends in the goat, the bears, turned back to their normal forms. Of course, they were very surprised. They had no idea Zeus could do that. And quick sidebar, this particular form of Zeus was seen as a protector of the storehouses because it was a snake, and Snakes kept rodents out of the storehouses. Zeus looked out across the ocean. Sixteen years ago, the women had found him on this island. They claimed, in a cradle dangling from a tree. They also claimed no knowledge of who his parents were. All they knew was his name. But Zeus didn't believe them. He never believed them. And now he stood looking north, off across the sea, and felt like there had to be more to life than eating, sleeping, and working. Like he was meant to do more. To be more. Matisse called out behind him. He turned, smiling, and told his wife he would be on his way. He had met the beautiful Matisse down by the river only a few years before. She had been singing sweetly and He was just drawn to her. They had a whirlwind romance, and even though I'm not exactly sure who would preside over the wedding of a god who didn't know it was a god to a titan who did, the pair was married. Zeus walked into his simple little house and sat at the rough wood table. Hey, you think I should grow a beard? He asked, rubbing the little peach fuzz on his chin. I should grow a beard. I feel like it would be this, like, classic look. What do you think, honey? Honey? Matisse was sitting there smiling. She took Zeus's hand and leaned forward. She was pregnant. As the baby grew inside Matisse, discontentment began to swell inside Zeus. He was nearly a man and wondered if this was all his life was going to be. Would he wake up one day with a long gray beard? transformed into one of those men sitting down by the docks and wonder where his life had gone. What would become of their child? Would they grow up, marry some islander, and die here as well? He shared all these thoughts with Matisse, admitting that he realized she had so much more to be concerned about right now, but he had to tell someone. Matisse cast her eyes downward with a sigh. She always said this day would come. Matisse reflected aloud to herself. Zeus was confused, Who, who said this day would come? Matisse didn't answer. Instead, she stood and found a vial, a vial a woman had told her long ago to hand to young Zeus before he left this island to claim his destiny. Matisse had made the potion, but she had never expected to fall in love with the one who would take it. She refused to answer Zeus's questions. A storm gathered outside and swelled with Zeus's rage as he demanded to know more, but still... Tis would not answer. All she shared was on the next day, she and Zeus would sail north to the house of the king and seek out the queen, a woman by the name of Rhea. When she used that vial, all would become clear. And so, the next morning, the couple sailed north to the palace of the king for them both to meet their destiny. They made their way into the city, as just another couple shuffling through. They had reconciled, but Zeus couldn't shake the feeling that everything between he and his wife had somehow changed, that this trip together would be the last one they ever took. The pair arrived at the palace, and the guard took one look at the scruffy-faced boy and turned up his nose. Then, he saw the boy's wife. Immediately, he stepped aside and allowed them both to enter. Minutes later, Rhea held the very confused face of Zeus in her hands. She took the boy in her arms and embraced him. Son, she said. Zeus sputtered. Son? No, sorry. He was orphaned on an island when he was a baby. Rhea smiled. He wasn't orphaned. She had placed him there for safekeeping. He was a prince and he was a god. Zeus tried to object, but he quickly realized the queen was serious. He wanted to argue, to refute it, to tell her that it was ridiculous. But he knew that she was right. He had always felt different, and now it was all confirmed. He looked to his wife, and she responded with a solemn nod. Zeus turned back, and saw Rhea staring at his wife, at the bump on her abdomen. She was pale. Zeus put his arm around Matisse, and brought her up to meet his mother, announcing that this was his wife. Rhea stood stone-faced. She knew. She had always known. The prophecies were never wrong. Rhea dismissed the titan, Matisse. The next steps were meant for Zeus's ears alone. The boy laughed. No, whatever the queen had to say to him, she could say to his wife too. He turned around with no small degree of swagger, but Matisse was already gone. Without hesitation, Rhea presented the vial that Matisse had brought. Zeus started his new job tomorrow. He was cupbearer to the king. In the moments that followed, Queen Rhea told Zeus everything. How his father wasn't just a god, but king of the gods. And how there had been a prophecy that he would be overthrown by his children. So he had eaten them. All of them. Or so he thought. One had gotten away. That was Zeus. And he was going to save his family. Tomorrow, it would all begin. Rhea didn't think he would go quietly, but she loved her children. This was her best and last hope. Her son took the vial and nodded slowly. So, all he needed to do was put this in Cronus's drink and Matisse's ancient world epicac would do the rest. Fine. Let the war begin. Zeus folded his hand around the potion and started to leave, but Rhea stopped him. There was one more thing. It was about Matisse. <laughs> Matisse was in bed by the time Zeus found their room. He looked at her. He he couldn't believe it. He nudged her shoulder, and she woke up, sitting up in bed, asking how it went with the queen. You're going to kill me, Zeus uttered. What? They will, Zeus said, gesturing toward the wife's stomach. Or one of them. Matisse laughed. But when Zeus didn't, she sat up straighter, "'There was a prophecy,' he explained. "'All your children by me will be wiser than me. "'And if I have a son by you, that child will overthrow me.'" Matisse furrowed her brow. "'They were prophecies. "'They couldn't be believed,' she reminded him. "'Zeus motioned to the room all around them. "'To the whole reason they were here. "'Matisse believed the prophecies about Cronus. "'Why not those about Zeus?' "'He needed to leave her. "'That much was certain.'" but as he thought about it more, what if that baby was a boy? As his voice trailed off with those thoughts, Matisse leapt from the bed and immediately transformed into a bear. Zeus stood too and he closed his eyes. His wife was a Titan, a fact that he hadn't known until just that evening. That was big, but Zeus was something else as well. His mother had imbibed him with dreams and goals. He was the future ruler of the universe. He was going to be all-powerful. So, when his wife turned into a bear, he held out his hand, and she changed into a frog. And just like that, the room fell silent. Zeus let out a sigh and told Metis she could stay like that. No tadpole was going to overthrow him. Then, he heard a rumbling, and the frog exploded into a serpent that coiled tightly around Zeus. The future king of the gods panicked, but only for a moment before regaining control, changing Matisse into a mouse. The mouse turned into a lion. Zeus turned it into an ant. She turned into an eagle, and with all the power he could muster, he changed her into a fly. Zeus knew he had to hold her there, but she was so strong. He began to shake as his strength started to wane. If she turned into anything, she would kill him and the prophecy would be complete. So he did the last thing anyone wants to do when they see a fly, but the first thing that popped into Zeus' mind, Zeus ate the fly. As he felt the lump work its way down his esophagus, he felt her power wane. Soon, she was gone, and so was the baby. He, He was safe, and he was alone. For the first time, but certainly not the last, Zeus understood the curse that haunted his family. As we talked about way back in episode 28, Zeus, the cupbearer, smeared the potion on the inside of Cronus' cup. The king vomited like clockwork, if clocks could vomit, and first the stone, then Poseidon, Hades, Hera, Hestia, and Demeter spilled out, fully grown too, onto the floor of the throne room. From there, the battle for the universe began, the Titanomachy, on one side were the Titans, the parents of the generation we know, clashing with the Olympians, their children, Due to his wanton cruelty leading them to war, the Titans elected a new leader and chose Atlas. And the war began. Part of the whole reason Gaia helped Cronus overthrow his father, Uranus, was because Uranus was rightfully terrified of some of the children he had with his wife. The first were the Hundred Handers, creatively named because they had, yes, 50 heads. The second were the Cyclopes, which is the plural of the word Cyclops. They were just super strong with one eye. Well, Cronus freed them, used their help to take over the world, and then turn on them almost immediately, locking them back up again, before they were really scary. I mean, if you're in a very real, might makes right situation, right after you use said might, to take control of the entire universe, you have to make sure they won't do the exact same thing to you. Not saying it was the right choice, but I see his motives. That is, unless your scheming mother, is still upset that one of the main reasons, she had you overthrow your father, hasn't been remedied, and will gladly prophesy, slash maneuver your own dismantling. Well, once Zeus and his siblings escaped impending doom, and probably took a long, hot shower in the case of the gods who spent their formative years waiting in bile, Zeus made his way to Tartarus, where he personally killed the guard, a titan by the name of Campy, and released the inmates. For ten years, the war raged on, but eventually the children, the Olympians, were victorious. With the war over, the titans were mostly sent to Tartarus, and Zeus and his brothers drew lots for dominion over the universe. Zeus, the youngest, won dominion over the sky. Poseidon won control of the seas, and Hades won the underworld. The earth was common to all, because remember, the earth was grandma, Gaia. Well, now that all that was settled, it was another big day for Zeus. His wedding day. His eighth wedding day, actually. Zeus smirked as he looked over at her. She wouldn't meet his gaze. Wife number eight, Hera. Hera. After the war, after he took his place on Olympus, Zeus decided to put the past behind him. He was going to remarry and have children. He was going to start his dynasty. He met the beautiful Themis, and it didn't work out. They had five children, but still, it just wasn't happening. So Zeus left her, Then he married Demeter, one of his older sisters, and she had a little girl named Persephone. There was Leto, who had twins, Apollo and Artemis, and on down the line he went but he never found someone who could make him feel the way Matisse had. Now, there was Hera. So, I know he gave Zeus a maybe-deserved-sympathetic origin, but whether it was the war or killing his first wife and child by turning them into a fly and eating them, Zeus had changed, and he was into some pretty dark stuff at this point. Take, for instance, his courtship with Hera. She didn't want to marry him. She had seen him marry his way through the family tree, and didn't want any part of that. She probably had bigger things in store. A life that was her own, but all that ended. the day she chanced upon a wounded bird. It was a poor, sweet baby cuckoo. Hera found it one morning while she was out walking. It looked like it had been attacked by a cat, and its wing was broken. She scooped it up, kissed it on its adorable little bird head, and took it home. The little baby bird was happy and playful. And a few days later, it was in good spirits. People came and went, but Hera lived alone on a mountain. It wasn't easy to be a god among mortals, and so she'd hidden herself away. A couple more days went by, and the only company she had was the little baby cuckoo. Laying one day with the cuckoo resting on her chest, she noticed the bird awaken with a start. Look to the window, and then stare at her. It started to get heavier. It wasn't changing at all, Not yet. Just getting heavier. At last, it had become so weighty that Hera could hardly breathe. It was like a full grown man sitting on her chest. That's when the bird started to turn. In seconds, Zeus was on top of her. He had snuck into her home and watched for days to learn her routines and see who would stop by and when. When she laid him on her chest, he knew his opportunity had arrived. He said nothing making his move in silence. When it was done, he left. The next day, a marriage proposal came, again, from Zeus. The proposal said she would be lucky to have anyone take her now, since she was no longer a virgin. But he was still happy to, being the good brother he was and all. Now, Greek mythology in general is kind of hard on Hera. She's routinely depicted as vengeful and kind of petty, punishing people whose only fault was being attacked by her husband. The fact that Hera also went through unspeakable trauma of not just being attacked by Zeus, but then shamed into marrying him and spending all of eternity as his wife while he ran around behind her back, doesn't make her treatment of Io or any of the others less vile, but it does show us a fuller picture of her story and circumstances, including this very painful place brought about by one guy, Zeus, who continually wronged a lot of people and never had to live up to any consequences. Anyway, Grandma Gaia came to their wedding and gave Hera the tree that produces golden apples. The same such tree that she would command Hercules to steal from for his 11th labor. She and Zeus spent their wedding night on the island of Samos. And that night lasted 300 years. And in that time, something else happened. Zeus found that he had a headache. It was a weird thing. He had heard about getting sick, of course. Mortals did it all the time. They also died all the time which Zeus really hoped wasn't coming his way. He soon began to not care whether or not dying was in his future. In fact, the worse his headache became, the more he kind of liked the prospect. Finally, he turned to Prometheus, one of the titans who had stayed out of the war. Having preferred hanging out on Earth with his weird little creations, Zeus had a favor. Prometheus glanced back from the torch he had been eyeing. Huh? Cleave your head in half with an axe? He'd be happy to. Poseidon was in earshot and not knowing what would happen if a titan cleaved a god's head in half, but really wanting to find out, he ran outside to the others on Mount Olympus. They rushed in as Prometheus put a big axe on Zeus' forehead, found the axe, and lifted it into the air. Zeus had his eyes shut tight, waiting for the sweet release of the end of the headache, or death. At this point, he really didn't much care which, when Prometheus swung the axe. There was a flash and a crash as Zeus went flying across the room. (sighs) Ah, Then he felt like he could breathe for the first time in weeks. His pain was gone. He reached up to feel the axe wound on his forehead, healing Wolverine style, and smiled. He sat up and paused. Wait, who are you? There, standing before Prometheus as the axe and his jaw dropped, was a fully armored woman. The rest of Olympus stood awestruck, too. Even Helios, in his chariot, stopped the sun high in the sky that afternoon to look at the woman. Zeus narrowed his eyes. Sure, this was the beginning of the world and he was an Olympian, so basically anything goes in terms of reproduction, but generally, fully formed beings did not spring from headaches. He had never been pregnant or... Oh. And then he thought of a certain fly he had eaten just before the war. Looked at the woman's face. She looked just like her. Just like Matisse. Matisse was gone, but... this girl had... lived? It reminded Zeus of what happened to his siblings. And he looked on the wise, formidable woman in front of him. He wouldn't make the same mistake as his father. Again, and fight her. Instead, he embraced his daughter. And he welcomed her to Olympus. He announced that she came from a god's mind. And she would be called Athena. Which... As the folk etymology goes, means from the deity's mind. It's not really, though. People think she was actually just named after the city. Hera, however, looked on. She was trapped with Zeus. But not only did he regularly disrespect her and their marriage, the marriage that she was forced into, but now he was giving birth without her. Athena would be his daughter alone. Hera shook her head. She would show him. proved to be a diligent young warrior, but she was more than that. Her symbol being the owl, she was associated with wisdom and became known as the daughter of one of the wisest women in the world. Everyone marveled at her, but Hera stewed in secret, until another surprise guest showed up at Olympus. It was a woman, a naked woman, riding a shell? She wasn't really riding a shell, but that's how Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, is depicted in perhaps the most famous painting of her. She sailed on him one day, turning the heads of literally everyone. She had been rowing since uh, the beginning of time, she announced, give or take a couple thousand years. Everyone gathered around quickly to hear Aphrodite's story. In the beginning, there was chaos. She remembered the water, the foam and the furies as she came to life there in the endless ocean. She found something to cling to and pulled herself up out of the water. Zeus put his hand on her shoulder to comfort her. Oh, wow, seriously? That must have been so hard for the beautiful stranger that, as far as he could tell, wasn't related to him. Granted, as he got older, that became less and less of an impediment. Aphrodite shared that there was one thing that kept her alive for all those years at sea. It was what she had been born out of, her shelter during the storms. It was Uranus's severed genitalia. Zeus removed his hand from her shoulder as discreetly as he could, while also making it as quick as possible. Everyone sat wide eyed. She she came from Uranus's severed genitals after Cronus cut them off and threw them into the sea? Aphrodite nodded. Well, technically the foam that surrounded them after they splashed down. The furies came from the drops of blood and the Zeus was disgusted. He could not believe that Aphrodite came from his grandpa's Ew Aphrodite shrugged. I mean In a roundabout way, all the Olympians kind of did, but whatever. She was here now, and she was going to take her place among them as one of the rulers of the universe. With smiles on their faces, all the Olympians stood to mingle and introduce themselves to the beautiful new arrival. All, that is, except for two in the crowd. From opposite sides of the circle, Athena and Hera hung back, glaring at Aphrodite as she shook hands and joyfully met the group. Disgusted, Athena turned and started walking away, but Hera remained, clenching a fist. Her other hand curved around her middle. Hera's look softened briefly. Zeus wasn't the only one in this relationship to have a baby alone. This one was hers. we're going to continue with the origin stories of the Olympians and continue working our way toward the Trojan War. Oh, and today's beginning story of Zeus was our retelling of one particular version. As with anything in mythology, there are so many different versions. If you thought it didn't take long for Zeus to get from sympathetic orphan to violent megalomaniac, there's a version where Matisse is not his consensual first wife, but where he chases her down and rapes her after he was married to Hera. Real quickly, I want to mention that we have an online shop where you can get awesome t-shirts, stickers, and more all while helping to support the show. For the shop, head on over to shop.bardic.fm. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a Santar Christmas tree ornament, an ornament where Santa is a Santar, as if you needed that explanation, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, books and ad-free versions of the show that won't make people as uncomfortable as a jacked, shirtless Santa with the bottom half of a horse whose eyes follow you all around the room. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creatures this week are the Yule Lads, from Icelandic folklore. It's hard having kids home from school on a winter break. It's even more difficult if you live in a cave with your 13 sons, third husband, and homicidal cat that we'll get to in a moment. It's kind of no surprise that Greyla and her kids need to get out of the cave during this month, and drive the rest of the world insane for a little while. How they do that takes different forms. The mother, Gryla, is a troll with, according to one rhyme, 15 tails which hold 100 bags apiece, with each bag having a 20-child capacity, which means, on a good night, that's 30,000 children that can come home for dinner. And when I say, for dinner, I mean it in the ha-ha ironic way that monsters say it, because she loves to eat bad children. She's known as the Christmas witch, and while there isn't a lot of agreement on what she looks like, in some versions, she doesn't have a single tail, but just carries a bag of children on her hip for some light snacking. All versions agree that you don't want to meet her, Her sons, though, the Yule Lads, as they're called, are a different story. They are 13 pranksters who make their way around to children's houses on the 13 nights leading up to Christmas. Children set out wooden shoes, and on each night, a different lad will stop by and bring either a small present for the child if they were good, or if they weren't, fill the shoes with rotten potatoes. By the way, rotten potatoes seem so much worse than lumps of coal. The Yule Lads have developed their own personalities over the years, and none of them are people you'd really want to hang out with. I'll run through the list, and to our Icelandic listeners, don't worry, I won't attempt the pronunciations. There's Gulligalk, the one who hangs out in the barn to steal milk buckets. Spoon liquor, pot liquor, and bowl liquor, who didn't really feel like they needed their own things. Stubby steals food from frying pans, though it really seems like it would make more sense to steal before or after the food is in the frying pan. Sheepcoat Claude harasses sheep, despite his peg legs. Door slammer is especially annoying. He wanders around at night, slamming doors. Skier Gobbler will steal your yogurt. Sausage Swiper will dangle down from the rafters Mission Impossible style, and grab the sausages you're smoking. Window Peeper and Doorway Sniffer use their own respective methods to find stuff to steal. Meat Hook is not the name of a serial killer, but a guy who uses a hook to steal meat from your house. And last but not least is Candle Stealer, who stole candles in a time when they were made from animal fat. So he ate them. Though it would have been fantastic to be there on the December they changed to wax. No word on what he's up to now. As I said, the 13 lads live with their troll mom, stepdad, and homicidal cat. The Christmas cat is about 1,000 times more dangerous than it sounds, because if you haven't gotten new clothes before Christmas Eve, the cat will murder you. This sounds like it's just preying on people who can't afford new clothes, but that's not entirely true. I guess it comes from a time when the community put forth every effort to finish up the autumn wool before Christmas and anyone who helped out would be rewarded with a new piece of clothing. Those who didn't help, or were just lazy, got nothing. So the Yule Cat wasn't just some house cat with pent-up rage, judging your out-of-date fashion choices, but a creature that was helping out the community, by taking out its rage, judging your out-of-date fashion choices. Between a troll packing children into a purse, 13 guys crawling around your house licking your stuff, eating your candles and stealing your yogurt, and a cat that will murder you if you don't have new clothes, and all that leading up to the Hidden Folk throwing wild parties on Christmas and January 6th, December in Iceland kind of sounds like a lot to handle. To our Icelandic listeners, good luck. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band, Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes, and today's episode was written and hosted by me, Jason Weiser. Our story editor was Chris Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.